Well, happy Mother's Day again. It's uh, great to have you here today, and uh, what, a, what a day um, to celebrate the goodness of God, the mercy of God. That's a, that's a great song. I've been listening to that to a number of times this week, so I uh, really, really enjoyed the, the message of that. Um, so this is not a Mother's Day message I'm going to share with you today. Um, but we're going to jump back, at least not per se, uh, but I think it will be helpful. We're going to jump back into our appendices study um, from 1 Corinthians. And as we worked through uh, last year, sometime, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we looked at what Paul had to say about marriage, about divorce, about singleness. We talked about that and what Scripture says. And uh, this morning I want to take a big picture a 30,000-foot view, if you will, at marriage. And I want to share with you what the Bible says from a big-picture perspective about marriage. Um, So if you're a mom today, or hope to be one day, this will certainly be of value to you as the wife of your husband, as the the mother of your children. However, I've been praying and asking and hoping that God will use his word today to be of value to all of you. You say, well, a message on marriage. I'm single, I'm good with that, or I'm not even close to thinking about marriage, let alone getting married. That's okay, because you'll see as you work through this, as we share what God has to say about this, it will be of value to each of us as individual believers before God. So marriage, as the Bible describes it today, this is no, no secret. It's, it's out there, and if you uh, look at the news or on the internet or any Facebook, any of that stuff, uh, marriage, as God describes it, as the Bible tells us about it, is under attack from all angles. It, it just is. Uh, It has been for some time now. There are all kinds of objections across society, across our culture. Uh, Marriage is oppressive to women. Uh, That's the view of some. It crushes individual identity. It stifles passion. It's just a piece of paper. Uh, It's not worth the time, the money, or the effort, so don't mess with it. It is viewed by many so negatively that people, because of their own experiences or feelings or those of others they know have opinions and feelings that marriage is just something you should avoid. The perception is not good. Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, cite research that says this on a positive note. Uh, All surveys tell us that the number of married people who say they are very happy, get this, the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriages is high. About 61 to 62% of people who are married say that they are very happy in their marriage. And that has been pretty much the case for the last decade. That's not the impression you would get if you just read what's out there in public or talk to people, but that is actually what most of the research actually says. And, and then they add this, most strikingly, studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those 
who have unhappy marriages out, will become happy within five years if they stay married and don't get divorced. Did you get that? People that have unhappy marriages, if they stay uh, in that marriage and don't get divorced within five years, they'll have a happy marriage. Now again, that's the research that's out there. That's not one person's opinion. Marriages as God designed them are critical to so much of what God intends the church to be and to do today in 2022. When God's pattern and design for marriage is not followed, marriages are ruined, families uh, fall apart, kids' lives are negatively affected, churches are hindered in their mission to make disciples and reach their communities. When we don't follow God's plan and pattern and design for marriage as he created it, as he created it. So let me share with you what we say in our statement of faith. We've been doing this as we looked at the authority of the word of God, as we looked at future events. We have statements on these things in our constitution, statement of faith, things that we as a church believe that if you're a member, I know you've memorized it, right? Just kidding. But I'm sure you've read it. And uh, here's what we say. We believe that God created both the man and the woman in his image. We believe that God created biblical marriage to be only one man and one woman united in a covenant relationship before God. Scripture reserves sexual activity to the marriage relationship. And that's what we say in our church statement of faith. You can find that online and uh, uh, at our website. It's listed there if you want to see more about that and get some of the scripture uh, background and support for that. But it is critical as we dig in that we understand what the Bible says about marriage. And so we want to do that this morning. And I'd like for you to see two biblical principles about marriage that we get from God's word. Number one, we want to talk about God's lifelong pattern for marriage. And then secondly, we're going to talk about God's redemptive picture of marriage. So firstly, um, God's lifelong pattern for marriage. And if you have your Bible, you would like to open to Genesis chapter one and follow there. We're going to move into Genesis two as well. But Genesis chapter one and if you want to use one of the Bibles, a hard copy of the Bible underneath the chair in front of you, there should be uh, a Bible there in that Bible, page 1. Genesis 1, page 1. Makes sense, right? But Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, God's lifelong pattern for marriage. Here's what we read. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, that's what God says. That's the authority of the word of God. Secondly, move down in your Bibles to chapter 2 and verse 22. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 22. 
And we read this, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her, the woman, to the man. Verse 23, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That is God's pattern for marriage right there. Did you get that? If you've never seen that before, I can't imagine, because if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, uh, you've probably heard reference made to that text. But there it is as we read it. And as we talk about man leaves his father and his, and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. It is critical that we understand that. In all of my study this week, I, I came across all kinds of definitions of marriage and uh, pretty much started, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go to our statement of faith and adjust a little bit because that wasn't written as a definition but a statement of what we believe about marriage so here's my definition marriage is a lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman now let me break that down into three sections a lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman when we say lifelong when questioned about divorce in, by the Pharisees, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, all right, he responded when, to the Pharisees when they were asking about what he thought about divorce, about those who had been married. Jesus referred in the Genesis account, the verses that we just looked at, to the pattern that was established at creation. Jesus referred Back to Genesis chapter 2, he referred to the design for marriage that is listed for us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. And in Matthew chapter 19, I put those scriptures just for you so you could see them, write them down. I'll, I'll read them for you. You can follow along, check them out later on or even now if you'd like. But in Matthew chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 4, as the Pharisees were Again, questioning, the Bible tells us to test Jesus. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Jesus is talking about the Genesis pattern that was listed for marriage. He says, and verse 5, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus refers to Scripture. And then in verse 7, when he goes on, why then, they asked, and the Pharisees are now talking, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. You see, God's pattern for marriage is lifelong. We don't get into the divorce. We talked about that. 
Jesus talked about it here in Matthew 19 and the accounts in Mark and Luke. He doesn't mention the adultery clause, but it's there. We also looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about the desertion of an unsaved husband or wife at that point. And so as we look at that, those, those were reasons, biblical reasons for divorce. But we're not there. Jesus is saying, he says, because your hearts were hard, God allowed that. But that's not the way it was from the beginning. God's pattern for marriage was lifelong. That's it. Now, you can talk about it all you want, and, and yet God says hardness of heart will cause problems in a marriage. Spiritual hardness of heart will cause problems in a marriage. So that's Jesus' answer as he says, a lifelong marriage. Secondly, the covenant relationship, a lifelong covenant relationship. Marriage is not a consumer relationship. We are all consumers, right? You go to the grocery store, you're looking for sales, you cut coupons out or, or whatever you do, you're looking for good deals. We're consumers. We want the best deal we can possibly get for the best product that we can afford. That's what we do. Well, we've moved that right into marriage and marriage is not a consumer relationship. It is a covenant relationship. You see, if the consumer's needs are not met, you look for another product, right? You look for another store. You look for another person. You look for another spouse. When your marriage is based on consumerism, that's what happens. It doesn't last. Who will give you what you want at a better cost? You see, consumerism is about my needs. It's about what I want. It's about the individual, not the relationship. In fact, consumerism causes marriage to be more about the individual than about the relationship. And that's not what we read in the Bible. It's like if you have no loyalty to Weiss if there's a better price at Wegmans, right? You have no loyalty to Wegmans if there's a better price at Sam's. You have no loyalty to your spouse if that spouse stops meeting your needs because consumer relationships are about what I want and about what I think I need. Marriage is not a contractual agreement, not just not a consumer relationship. It's not a contractual agreement. We're all used to contracts, right? Anybody have a cell phone contract with somebody? AT&T, Verizon, whoever. I don't know. I don't want to start advertising, right? Uh, but... but if you do, you have a contract with them. Anybody have a house payment, a mortgage? Anybody have a car payment? We could go on. Anybody have a contract with an internet provider? How about cable TV or satellite TV? Or you have a contract, a year or two that you sign a contract. If you stop paying any one of those contracts, if you don't do what the contract says you should do, that company will break that contract and they'll take your stuff. If you have a contractual marriage... When the spouse doesn't provide what you need, what you sense is their side of the contract, they'll break that contract and take their stuff. That's why marriage is not a contractual agreement. 
Marriage, however, is a covenant relationship. What do we mean by that? Well, it's an unconditional promise to each other. Not a consumer agreement, not a contractual arrangement. It is a covenant relationship, an unconditional promise to each other. That you do your part, as Scripture says, and that you fulfill your promise whether your spouse does or not. You see, what, wait, and what's the difference? Well, because if you're a consumer or you're looking at marriage as a contract, when your spouse doesn't follow through with what you think they should do, whoosh, we're gone. That's not a covenant relationship. Because Scripture tells us that we fulfill the promises that we've made and Scripture lays out guidelines for that. We fulfill that promise whether our spouse does or not. That's called love. And I want to say a little bit more about that later on. Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 17. And uh, if you were to go and look at the context, you'd find out Proverbs 2.17. Actually, the verse before that says, it says this, Who has left the partner of her youth? Who is I talking about? Well, if you went back to verse 16, you'd find it's talking about the adulterous woman. That's the who in verse 17. So who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God? You could check out Malachi 2 verse 14 and you'd find the same thing. Marriage is a covenant relationship. It is an unconditional promise, which means we promise to do what God says we ought to do as husbands or wives, no matter what the response of our spouse is. That's a covenant. That's a promise. And it is critical that we understand that. That's why in chapter 2 and verse 24 of Genesis, where we read earlier, we read that a man will be united to his wife. He will leave his father and mother. Be united. Some translations may say will cleave. The word means to cling, to glue oneself to, to weld. Jane's dad was a welder. Her brothers are welders. I mean, they can weld anything to anything. And when they take two different individual things I, and weld them together, they don't have to be the exact same thing. They don't come apart. Even sometimes if you take a sledgehammer to it, boy, you're just hardly going to be able to get that thing apart. That's the word here, united to his wife. Cling to his wife. A cleave is welded to his wife. And it is critical that we understand that is the united to his wife, the glued together, united by a covenant, by a binding promise, and that is before God. That's what Scripture says. That's the unconditional promise we make in marriage. Now, I know that's not a popular stance on marriage, on marriage today, but that's what Scripture tells us. Thirdly, one man and one woman. <laughs> marriage is a lifelong covenant relationship between one man and one woman. Again, Jesus affirmed the authenticity of God's creation and his pattern for marriage, of his design and plan for marriage between a man and a woman. 
That's what the Bible says, folks. One flesh relationship. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And that one flesh relationship that we saw as described as marriage in chapter 2 and verse 24 of Genesis assumes two people of the opposite sex. That's, again, what Scripture says. Two people of the opposite sex. That phrase points to sexual intimacy. That's, what, that's what's being talked about there. In fact, that's why when you go on to verse 25 and you see the man and the wife were naked and it didn't bother them. You see, that's what's involved in that text there. Paul warns the Corinthians. We went through that in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Paul warned the Corinthians about being joined as a one flesh relationship with a prostitute in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Why? Because it was critical. That's what happens. A one flesh relationship. And then Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, where we started. If we looked at verse 21, that God created man in his own image, in his image created male and female created he them, right? Verse 28 then goes on and talks about be fruitful and increase in number, folks. Only one man and one woman can do that. You understand? This is not 10th grade biology. This is 2022 theology. That's what God's word says. And it's critical that we understand that. Same-sex marriage, folks, is not God's plan. It's not according to God's pattern. It's not according to God's design. It's not the way God created marriage to be. Now, it's critical that we get that down now. Because next week when we talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality, we start with marriage. Because if you don't have the foundation of marriage correct, you won't get any of the rest of it right either. That's why it's critical that the foundation of our understanding of what the Bible says about homosexuality is based on God's pattern for marriage. And God's pattern for marriage is simply this. One man with one woman in a lifelong covenant relationship before God. That is what the Bible says. And as we said a few weeks ago, that's why we have God's word as our authority for what we believe and how we live. Right? That's there. Secondly then, we talk about God's redemptive picture of marriage. All right? God's lifelong pattern for marriage. And secondly, God's redemptive picture of marriage. Um, If you have your Bibles handy there, you want to follow Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, you may not have heard Genesis 1 or 2 in a Christian wedding ceremony. But I'm going to say more often than not, you will have heard Ephesians 5 used in a Christian wedding ceremony. And, and I want to go back before the actual marriage text to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. 
because as we, we, we get to what God says about marriage in Ephesians 5, it's critical that we start at the beginning of that chapter, though the chapters were put together afterwards. It, it, it really sets us up in this regard. In verse 1, chapter 5, Paul says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Now, that's not the example of marriage. He's just talking about God's example of life. And he's beginning, he's already talked about some of that in chapter 4, and then he continues on in chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. So he's talking to those who know Jesus. All right? And, verse 2, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now notice the salvation emphasis. It begins at the beginning of chapter 5 and it moves on through. And we're going to look at that because when we get down to the key biblical passage on marriage, not the only, but a key biblical passage on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 starting at verse 22, we read these verses picture for us. Christ's relationship with the church, his love for us in providing salvation. We use the word redemption. The word redemption is one of those words sometimes that we use and don't always understand. It is the theological word that means simply that God bought us out of, as we call it, the slave market of sin. God paid for our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He died in our place for our sins. He paid the debt for our sin. That's redemption. He bought and paid for our salvation. He forgave us. That's redemption. He redeemed us. We used to sing the, the hymn, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. You could simply say, I'm saved and set free in how I love to proclaim it. That's the word redemption. And that's a redemptive picture here in Ephesians chapter 5 of marriage in verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And his covenant relationship with the church is described Jesus Christ's relationship with God's people, a covenant relationship, a marriage relationship, if you will. And one of the biggest arguments, folks, for God's pattern of marriage is that it must picture our relationship with Christ. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. And we got to get that into our hearts and minds. So as we look at this, as we talk about this, here it is, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. I want you to know the wife's responsibility before God, not just to her husband, but the, the picturing of because that's what God expects of us as the church, as believers who know him. As he says, as you do the Lord, we submit to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior, again, redeemed, all right, salvation. Now, as the church submits to Christ, there it is, as the church, that's us, 
as we submit to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. This is the idea of voluntarily, willingly placing yourselves, wives, under your husband's love, under his leadership. You act as a free agent. Do you understand that term? If you're a sports fan, I know you do. If you're not, let me explain. Professional sports, they have contracts, right, with their players. They have a signed contract. At the end, and it depends on the sport, at the end of their contract, at a certain point in time, if they've played enough years, they're considered a free agent. They're no longer under a contract with their current team. They can sign with anybody for any amount of money. That's a free agent. He willingly chooses where he wants to go. That's really what this idea of submission is all about. It's a willing, voluntarily placing of yourselves, wives, underneath the authority of your husband. Because why? We as believers do that under God's love and leadership and authority. We do that under Christ. We as believers who know. That's the illustration there. And he says, in the same way as you put yourself under the love and leadership and authority of Jesus Christ's wives, you're going to do that with your husband. Husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you see again? Yes, that's the husband's responsibility, but why? Because it's the same. Just as Christ loved the church... Just as Christ gave himself up for the church. What did he do? He died on the cross for us. Jesus died in my place for my sins. Jesus died in your place for your sins. That's what we're reading about. So that's what Christ did. Verse 26, he did that just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, there it is again, in the same way as Christ loves the church, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. I go to Brown's gym because I care about my body. Right? My doctor says, you got to go do cardio. You got to work out. You got to keep your heart healthy. If you don't, you're asking for trouble. So that's what I do. I take care of my body. And I, and I work out. And, and, and what Paul is saying is just as we care for our bodies, so do as Christ cares for the church. So are we to care for our wives, men. That's what Paul is talking about. And this is more than he's saying, love your wives. And this is more than just a romantic love. It is more than just passion and emotion. Now, that is part of marriage. That is part of married love. Absolutely. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. If that's the only reason you get married, it won't last. And you may be sitting thinking, uh, I'm not sure of that. Well, talk to married couples. <laughs> You'll find out. 
But that's what we read. But here's the idea. This love with which Christ loved the church is unconditional. It is sacrificial. Remember, Christ gave himself up for the church. We are to give ourselves up for our wives, husbands. Now, the chances that we'd ever be asked to do that are slim. But that might be easier sometimes than us being willing to do the things that we know would please our wives that don't please us. Sometimes it might be easier, so I'd rather lay my life down than give up what I'd rather do. That self-sacrificial, unconditional love is what we're talking about. For the good of the other, for the good of our wives, with no thought of getting anything in return. That's covenant love. Do you understand, men, that we as husbands are to love our wives with no thought of getting anything in return? It doesn't matter whether our wife responds or not. You say, are you kidding me? <laughs> no. That's what the Bible says. You say, wow, that sometimes is hard. Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, husbands, we're to love our wives whether we feel like it or not. If I had Pastor Paul here and have him come up and share, obviously in an anonymous way, talk about his experiences in counseling husbands and wives, one of the things that would be most often heard, well, I'm not sure I feel like I love him anymore or I love her anymore. Whether you feel like it or not, that's not the issue. Yes, love is critical to get that relationship started, but there are times when you won't feel like it. You know what, men? Today's Mother's Day. It's real easy to feel like I love my wife. Right? Because it's Mother's Day. But not every day is Mother's Day. And there come days when we don't feel like it. Uh, in fact, Tim Keller in his book talks about this. He said, there will be times when you will fall out of like. Not love, like. Think about that, right? Like is that affection. And sometimes you don't feel too liking of your spouse, of your wife, guys. And yet scripture tells us that we need to do that. So what do we do when the thrill is gone? You see, the Bible says we are to love our wives. That is an action, not an emotion. The action is commanded, not the emotion. You can't command an emotion. You, you can tell me how I should feel, right? We always try to do that with people all the time. Well, I know you feel, well, how do you know how I feel? Well, we can't command an, an emotion because that comes from within. But we can command an action. God's words commands that we love, men, period. Unconditional, sacrificially, that's the word. It's an action. It's not an emotion. It's not like the stock market. It's not like your favorite baseball team, where if your stock market gets a good return on your investment, you're happy. If your baseball team wins, you're happy. But the minute they don't, the minute you don't get a good return on your investment, the minute your team loses, what a bunch of bums, right? We can't talk about our wives like that's not how it works. No matter what we experience, you love even when you're putting more into the relationship than when you think you're getting out of it. 
Why? Because that is covenantal, unconditional, sacrificial love. That's a covenant relationship. That's the redemptive picture. It's the kind of love, folks, as brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus showed us when he went to the cross. Right? That's the kind of love he loves us with. And God's love for us is lifelong and beyond. Eternally, he loves us. He will never leave us or forsake us. God will never even feel like he doesn't want to love us. Wow. That's amazing. That's our salvation. That kind of love demands a response. Folks, it's critical. So what's the bottom line? Well, verse 31 of Ephesians 5. Look at it there. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. For this reason, verse 31, what reason? Go back to verse 30. We are members of his body. Because we, the church, we as believers, are one with Christ. Folks, do you realize that? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we are one with Christ? One with Christ? He lives within us. He dwells within us. One with Christ. Christ, everywhere we go, He is there. For that reason, He says, marriage brings a husband and wife together is one, and husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to respect their husbands. Why? Because we are one with Christ. Husbands and wives do what they are commanded to do, because we are one with Christ. One flesh relationship. And that is the mystery. Look, verse 32. This is a profound mystery. What? Now, in the New Testament, there are a number of different mysteries. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, there's a mystery that talks about Jew and Gentile being together. That's not the mystery here. That's not the context. The mystery here as we look at it, is that we, the church, are united to Jesus Christ. We, who were sinners, still are even when we are saved. We, who were enemies of God, no longer once we know Jesus, no longer enemies, but now children of God. We, who were enemies of God, are now made children. That is the mystery, that we are one with Christ when we don't deserve that in any, any way, shape, or form, right? Sometimes I think we really don't appreciate what that means. We deserve hell, folks. And yet God loved us so much that Jesus died, his one and only son, 
in our place for our sins. And marriage is to picture that relationship in every way. So listen, here's the every one part of this message. So you've been talking to husbands or wives, maybe you've been talking to moms, well, I've been talking to everyone. Because whether you're married or not, if you've been saved, you are in Christ, one with Him, and that relationship will never end. For those who don't believe in what we call eternal security, in other words, once you're saved, you're always saved, that's eternal security, it's pictured for us right there in the way God loves the church. If God's love for us will ever end, then we have a problem with eternal security. But we're told right here that it does not. And that our marriages are to picture in every way Christ's love for us, his relationship with us. That includes the lifelong, never-ending marriage relationship, salvation relationship. We've been united in Jesus as one. We're to willingly put ourselves under the love, under the leadership, under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the plan of God. And folks, when you understand that to be true, our response ought to be, as we say it all the time, the mission of Heritage Baptist Church is to make more people more like Jesus. And when we understand what Christ has done for us, that we are one with him, we should, without question, with all the energy and effort and time we have, pursue becoming more like Jesus in all that we do. And everything we say and everything we think and everything we talk, how we act, it ought to be more like Jesus because we are no longer enemies, but we are children of God. Jesus, your mercy is all my plea we sang about. We're going to sing it again as we close this morning. But just think of the words. Pay attention to what we're singing as we do that this morning. In this song, I have no defense. My guilt runs too deep. That's when we were enemies. But because of his mercy, we have been forgiven. Wow, what an amazing thing. Praise the king who bore my sin, took my place when I stood condemned. Oh, how good you've always been to me. I will sing of your mercy. I'm no longer an enemy. I am a child of God. Wow. I would ask you today, as a believer before God, does your life picture God's love for us? Does your life picture your response in placing yourself, submitting yourself to God's love, to his leadership, to his authority in your life? Those of you who are married, does your marriage picture that relationship? That's what we have to work on as we close today. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for 
your love for us and sending your son to die for us in our place for our sins. Oh God, I pray that when we know Christ and are forgiven and realize that we are now a child of God, that we would want to do all we can to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for our marriages, our families. God, would you help our husbands and wives, our moms and dads to be like Jesus, to make sure that marriage relationship reflects Christ's relationship with the church. And if there are any here today who do not know Jesus, oh God, I pray that you bring conviction of their sin and an understanding of how much you love them by sending Jesus to die for them. Cause them to know they can be saved and forgiven today before they leave this building. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.